Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Uh, I was stationed here at the Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I think it was 1978. I recall it was the was a cold winter, and one day we had a blizzard. Uh, we had a blizzard, and I was stuck in Beaver Creek for three days. I, I couldn't get out. Uh, and, and this morning, I, I opened up my drapes in the hotel, and I looked out, and here was snow driving horizontally. I thought, of all the days to pick to come out here, you know, <laughs> another blizzard heading into Dayton, Ohio. Fortunately, it, it, it wasn't uh, nearly as bad as what I experienced back back then, and I'm very, very happy to see so many of you here, and hopefully we can all have a good time this evening for the next hour or so. I cannot think of a more appropriate place than for this presentation than right here at the former Wright Field, where the men at the center of my story, two Army Air Forces colonels, spent most of their professional lives serving their country with foresight and determination. This to right field that Colonels Harold Watson and Donald Putt, I hope these names are familiar to some of you, brought the remarkable ME-262 and the Rado 234 jets for test and evaluation. A thousand tons of blueprints and critical test data, uh, which was supposed to help our industry play catch up and nearly 200 first-rate scientists on the Project Overcast and Paperclip came right here to Wright Field, largely <coughs> due to the efforts of these two men. And uh, one of the most prominent among the German scientists, of course, was Dr. Hans von Ohain. And he became, in time, the chief scientist of the wright Patterson Air Force Base Laboratories proof that America was and still is the land of opportunity even for our one-time enemies. Uh, I think I'm probably a, a, an example of that too. The United States has always been a great land of opportunity for me and I hope I can continue to serve in some capacity uh, as long as I'm alive. Uh, American Raiders then is a story of the disarmament of the German Luftwaffe of the exploitation of its technological secrets under Operation Lusty. It's a story of the creation of Air Force technical intelligence, variously known as T2, ATIC, FTD, now the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. It's still the same organization doing great service to this nation. And uh, above all, American Raiders is a story of people who loved their country and cared for our future. Uh, let me share with you maybe how I got to write this book. Uh, in, in 2000, I think it was sometime, I went to an 8th Air Force uh, Association meeting in, uh, spring, uh, in uh, Maryland, and you may wonder why I, uh, a German would, of German heritage, would go to an 8th Air Force Association meeting. Well, when these guys were bombing, in 1944-45, I was a kid living in Berlin, and so I was a frequent target, and as a result, I became a charter member of this organization. <laughs> <laughs> All of you can understand that, right? So, anyway, we have a nice table here, and a fellow sits next to me, his name is Bob Strobel. I asked Bob politely, what did you fly, B-17s, B-24s? He said, neither. I flew P-47s and ME-262. You can imagine I was taken a little bit aback uh, by the latter, and I said, what, did you defect to the Luftwaffe so you could fly their jets? No, no, no. He said very seriously, you know, at the end of the war, we didn't have any jet fighters, and we needed what they had back in the United States as quickly as possible, and I worked for a colonel by the name of Watson, and uh, there were seven of us, and we got a bunch of these jets together, and in a roundabout way. They managed to get them to Paris and then to Cherbourg, France, and finally got them over here to Wright Field. This is the cradle of American military aviation. I'll never forget that, Wright Field, uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, a place with much history. Well, uh, Bob Strobel then gave me the names of other Watsons, 
wizards. They called themselves wizards. Some of you probably know this. One evening they were sitting around a campfire broiling some trout, which they had fished out in the Lech River out there. They threw in some hand grenades, you know, and trout <laughs> came to the surface. And it beat C rations and K rations. And one of the guys, Bob Ansbach, uh, said, uh, wouldn't it be fun whizzing around the countryside in these German jets? And so they became Watson's wizards. I mean, they worked for Watson, so. Uh, and in fact, they became actually America's first uh, jet pilots, and uh, they taught themselves. There wasn't anybody really to teach them how to fly a jet. It was quite a transition, believe me. When you flew P-47s, you know, you taxi down the runway like that, and you never knew where you go were going. And a jet here in the ME-262 suddenly could look straight ahead. That was quite a revelation for these people, you know. And then, of course, in a prop job, when you pulled the power back, boom, you had no power, right? You, uh, and when you wanted power, you shoved the throttle forward, and there was power. Was a jet. <laughs> that was a learning curve they had. This didn't happen. You pulled the throttle back, nothing seems to happen, you know. But then slowly you lose your power, and when you want power, additional power, you push the throttle forward. It took a long time for the windmills to get wound up again. So uh, it was a surprise that they didn't at least kill one or two of them. Uh, but they tried very hard at times. <coughs> I said to Bob, has anybody ever written your story? Anybody written a book about this? Obviously very important event, contributions you and your people made to this country. And uh, he said, no. Uh, why should anybody do that? And I say, I think it's important. I did a little research real quick, and I found there were a few articles out filled with a lot of errors. Uh, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, Bob. I called him up. I said, but would you mind me uh, interviewing you? He said, no, no, come on out. I interviewed him for three hours. He told me all his war stories, which I then verified in the Air Force History Office, uh, you know, because you can't believe these fighter pilots. So, <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm glad I did this because he died six months later. If I hadn't interviewed him, I would have lost a great source of information because Bob, a first lieutenant, he's the, uh, he's the one who commanded this little group of captains and, and, and lieutenants whom Watson had uh, recruited to, to fly these uh, jets. So he gave me a lot of uh, insights. I was going to have one of Watson's wizards here this evening uh, former Lieutenant Roy Brown, uh, and uh, unfortunately because of the snow he couldn't make it. He lives in Chillicothe, and uh, I, I think it's a loss. I'm sorry that he isn't here because you would have all enjoyed meeting him. Uh, so uh, before Bob died, he gave me the addresses of these other wizards, and then I, I went out and interviewed these uh, good folks about their experiences. Uh, I finally decided to write this book because I found out this was such an important event in American history, the transfer of this technology to this country and how it was accomplished. And, and I wanted to do my little bit of saving American aviation history. That's why I wrote American Raiders, not for any personal benefit. Well, Everything that happened in American Raiders is portrayed and they, of course, happened within the context of World War II. And uh, World War II, how should I define World War II? Many of you have experienced it. I experienced it as a child. It was a terrible war. Some historians say 55 to 70, uh, 55 million people died, John Keegan. Others say, well, no, really 70 million people died in that war. Try to think about the numbers. Most of them were Europeans, and, uh, but there wasn't anybody there to really definitively count how many people died. It was just a murderous conflict. Uh, one thing we knew after it was all over, that uh, Europe was a heap of ashes from the city of Coventry to the Ural Mountains in, in, in Russia. It was a terrible place, believe me. The amazing thing to me is when I go back there, I'm sure when you all traveled there, you can't find any sign, any evidence of a conflict of this nature ever having uh, taken place. 
uh, I can get my arms around numbers like 55 million or 70 million. It's, it's just too big a number. So let me give you a little different perspective. <coughs> the uh, United States Strategic Air Forces in World War II, which consisted of the 8th Air Force, the 15th Air Force, the 9th Air Force, and the 1st Tactical Air Force Provisional. These people lost, in a period of less than three years, 60,000 men. I'm talking about 60,000 people died in air action in less than three years. I'm not talking about the people who were taken prisoners of war, not talking about the many more wounded who were sent home back to the United States. It was a bloody conflict. We lost only in the 8th Air Force over 6,500 B-17 and B-24 bombers. Just try to think of the numbers, the losses. We're restoring an airplane right here in the museum right now called the Memphis Bell, which was sent back, completed 25 missions. Very few people completed 25 missions in the early days of World War II. It was that kind of a bloody conflict. Let's look at it from the British perspective. The Royal Air Force Bomber Command lost over 55,000 people killed. They lost over 10,000 aircraft in combat, not counting the ones lost due to accident or so. So nearly 120,000 people died in the air war against Nazi Germany. And uh, that is more people than we lost in the entire Cold War from the Berlin airlift through Korea into Vietnam. That's how bloody that conflict was. And uh, the amazing thing is that in 1945, the United States Strategic Air Forces consisted of 450,000 men. Right now, our Air Force, I think, has less than 350,000. This was only one part of the Army Air Forces. <laughs> it was that big. And General Tui Schwarz, the commander of the United States Strategic Air Forces in Europe, had 17,000 aircraft of all types. 11,000 of them were considered first-line aircraft. I mean, just think of the numbers. We will never see air forces of that size again. Uh, there's one amazing thing. Here's this most powerful air armada that, that was ever assembled in, in, in history. But you know, among all those airplanes, there was not one jet fighter squadron. There was not one jet bomber squadron. While in contrast, the Germans flew their first jet fighters in mid-1944. And then uh, the Arado 234 jet reconnaissance bomber, truly a fine airplane. We don't have one here, but there's one in the Advarhese Center in, in Washington in great condition. That particular aircraft flew for the first time after the D-Day landings. Uh, for people who think that the D success of the D-Day landing, for instance, was a preordained conclusion, let me remind you of this. That airplane could fly without opposition anywhere uh, across England, and had it been available only two months earlier, it could have detected Patton's sham army across the Pas de Calais, where Hitler thought the American forces were, and that we would be attacking uh, across the narrowest part of the channel there, it would have been very easy for this airplane to take the pictures and find out there weren't any tanks, there weren't any troops down there. So even a small thing like that uh, can affect the outcome of an operation. The Germans had a bomb site in this Arado 234, which was far superior to uh, to our northern bomb site, which we, of course, tried to protect like, like it was a piece of gold or, so, or some treasure. But by 1943, uh, the Germans already had the paperwork for the northern bomb site, and their scientists rejected it as being inadequate. So uh, they developed the first cruise missile, the V-1, because the V, you know, stood for revenge weapon, Vergeltungswaffe, you know. And when we captured our first ones in 1944, uh, we shipped it back here to Wright Field, made copies, and it was known as a JB-2 loon. And we built a whole bunch of these things to use against the Japanese, but uh, fortunately we never 
did have to use them. But German technology started flowing into American aviation very, very early, as early as uh, 1944. And then, of course, when our air technical intelligence teams went through uh, the Nazis, the Luftwaffe's technological pantry, we came up with 138 missiles in various stages of development. You all remember the Nike Ajax, right? Hey, that's a German missile that made a quick transition. Can you imagine that weapon being used against our cumbersome B-17 or B-24 formations? So there was a lot of technology which could have been very, very dangerous uh, to our people. And uh, finally, of course, the Germans had the wind tun tunnels and the scientists uh, uh, to develop and build aircraft to fly beyond the speed uh, of sound. Um, let me read you something here. Dr. F. Swicky. Maybe you wonder why. He always went by doctor, by F. The reason was his name was Fritz. And in 1944-45, Fritz was not a good name. So <laughs> he just went by F. But Dr. Fr uh, Swicky uh, was fled Germany after the Nazis came to power. And he was an astrophysicist at Caltech. And he wrote a report which was published in 1946 for the Army Air Force Scientific Advisory Group, and he was part of this group. And this is what Dr. Swicky had to say. The technical representatives who have carefully studied the war technical efforts of the Germans are rather hard put for an explanation of why the enemy did lose the war. The German supersonic experts did an outstanding job, were many years ahead of all other countries. In spite of all other mistakes made, the Nazis might well have won the war. World War II, its outcome was not preordained. The Nazis were technologically, may I use the word stupid? They didn't understand it. They only called on technology when they felt the noose around their necks. Yeah, and then suddenly they wanted technology to save their regime, but they had lost two precious years when Hitler in 1941 thought he had won the war and started the victory celebrations in, in Berlin after his troops had marched as far as, as, as Moscow. And all major scientific work was stopped at that point in time. And of course, by 1943, you know, where are my scientists? You know, where's my stuff to save me? That was a little late. So, uh, uh, General Arnold, the commander of the Army Air Forces, I. I consider him one of the three best chiefs that the Army Air Force and the United States Air Force ever had, far-sighted, decisive man. <clears throat> he certainly was aware that, of what the Germans were doing. He was aware of their developments in, in jet technology. So, but he thought he had a handle on things. I mean, we had the P-59. In 1942, it flew for the first time. It was a twin-engine jet fighter. It looked ugly. It flew ugly. Uh, by 1943, the test pilots here at Wright Field, right outside this building, in front of those big hangars, uh, and the engineers there decided, we got to tell the general, this thing isn't going to make it. Now, as a matter of fact, it's not going to be good enough to be even a good trainer. Maybe it could be a trainer or something. Anyway, the, he found himself between a rock and a hard spot, General Arnold, because this was before you know, D-Day, and, and, and this, this was a critical period during the war. So he turned to the Lockheed Corporation and to a young engineer who had designed the P-38, there's one here, uh, Kelly Johnson. I still love the P-38, it's a great airplane, uh, and reflects the greatness of, of that man. And he, in so many words, said to Kelly, build me a jet fighter. And uh, Kelly did just that. In 138 days, he and his small team designed the P-80. In uh, April 1944, General Arnold ordered 1,000 P-80s. Ordering a jet fighter and designing an airframe does not make a jet fighter make. You've got to have a power plant. And we continued to experience problems with the power plant. We just we just couldn't work it right. Colonel Watson, when he spoke to a group here in, in Dayton in 1945, 
He said, the bucket kept flying apart, you know, coming apart, to mean the combustion chamber. They just, just couldn't build it right. And by 1945, with all the airplanes that General Tui spots had, we had four P-80 jets in Europe. One crashed, other one ended up in the factory, a British factory for engine modifications, and two of them we sent down to Italy to the 15th Air Force for morale flights. Uh, we did not have a jet fighter. As a matter of fact, by 1948, early in 1948, as Stalin was tightening the noose around Berlin, guess what our Air Force consisted of in, in Europe? United States Air Force in Europe, then commanded by Lieutenant General LeMay, and I served in his Air Force for five years, Strategic Air Command later on. And uh, he had one P-47 fighter group. That's all he had. There wasn't one jet fighter in Europe to oppose the Soviets. Now, the P-80 finally turned into a real airplane. We used a few of them in, in Korea. It was never a great fighter, but tens of thousands of American pilots cut their teeth, teeth on the T-33 on the trainer version, and it did a great, a great job for us. But as far as General Arnold was concerned, of course, he didn't have any jets. Bringing home the German technology was not an option for General Arnold. It was an imperative. He had to do that. He was thinking of the future of the United States. And he knew all those airplanes he had over there in Europe, the B-24s and B-17s, were good for one thing, mostly pots and pans. They had outlived their usefulness. Uh, allow me at this time to focus on an individual, on Colonel Donald Putt, great American who was commander of Air Materiel Command finally when he retired here at uh, Wright Field. As I told you, Wright Field, this is the cradle of American military aviation. Yeah, I know you know all that. And I want to talk to you about a defining moment in American aviation history. Donald Putt was an engineer, a test pilot here at Wright Field, was assigned to bomb a flight test. And, uh, it was Halloween 1935. He set out here in an X-299, was a predecessor to the B-17, fully fueled, and he was a co-pilot, and they put the power to the airplane, and they took off, and the airplane went into a steep climb, then it did what we call a wing-over, and it came down like this and crashed in a big fireball. Most of the crew was killed, but uh, survived that crash. The reason the airplane crashed, until then, all control surface on, uh, surfaces on airplanes had always been locked with wooden wedges, you know, with red streamers hanging from them. Uh, Boeing had, had put a mechanical system into the X-299 here, and, and the, the pilot thought that Putt had stomped on this lever and removed the locks, and then, of course, the co-pilot thought his, the pilot had done that. I mean, they didn't have checklists uh, in those days. Everything was kind of seat of the pants, and uh, they paid for it. Uh, you make a mistake, you didn't get fired in this Air Force. Was this, Army Air Corps was very small. And uh, Putt was a bright guy. In 1937, he went to uh, Caltech, and he studied aeronautical engineering. It was a fairly rare discipline at, at the time, under Dr. Theodor von Karman. Von Karman. Now, of you know, von Karman was one of the great aeronauticists. And he, too, was a refugee from Germany and fled Hitler's reign. And in 1938, Putt comes back here to Wright Field, and he was program manager for the B-26 and B-25. Now, I'm going to say something to you here, and if you're a B-26 performer, B-26 pilot, you probably won't, don't like to hear this, but Putt said the B-26 was a dog of all dogs. He was talking about the short-wing airplane. <laughs> so I see a postcard here in the a museum that says, B-20s, we lost fewer B-26s than any other aircraft in World War II. I, I don't know about it, but uh, down at MacDill, where they had the B-26s, they had a saying, one a day in Tampa Bay, you know, and they were talking about, not B-47s, but B-26s. Uh, so <laughs> that, that's the flying life in those, those days. And then he got involved in the first jet bomber competition, so to speak, right here at Wright Field. And they, and the, Army Air Forces went out and said to the manufacturers, give us something with 
jets on it. And uh, so the competition was for the B-45, B-46, B-47, and B-48. They were all, according to him, like B-29s with straight wings with jet pods hung, stuck in the wings or on the side of the fuselage. Nothing imaginative. Another thing I need to mention right here, American industry didn't really believe in jet power. They thought there was some kind of a toy. And one of the engine manufacturers, I won't mention the name here, still in existence, wrote a paper uh, to Putt and said that the piston engine is the ultimate uh, form of powering an aircraft, right? And he better understand that. So that's where we stood. We had an industry that didn't believe in new technology yeah, uh, to move uh, forward. So uh, Donald Putt then in 1945, along with, with uh, Hal Watson, both of them colonels here at the right field, get sent over to Europe, the headquarters of the United States Air Force in Europe, which is located, of course, where? In Paris, right? In a nice building on the banks of the Seine. And uh, they do various things there, and I'm going to talk about Watson later. But in, uh, in, on April 13, 1945, the city of Brunswick was captured by American troops. And a call came in to headquarters USTAF, to the exploitation division there, and they said, the Germans have a research center here that, that we didn't even know of. So Colonel MacDonald, who was the chief of uh, intelligence for uh, two response, uh, uh, told Putt, they all knew each other in, in, in this world, you know, MacDonald, Nutui, uh, Spatz, they knew each other from the early days. I mean, it was a very small army echo, you have to keep in mind. I have a copy of the telephone book here. Those days consisted of two pages, right field telephone book here. Uh, well, so uh, he sends Putt heading an air technical intelligence team to Brunswick to this research center called Falkenrode. There he found seven research labs, I mean, top flight, the best, the British and our forces never knew it existed. These, these labs were f fit the buildings into a forest. The buildings looked like forum houses or so. They had wind tunnels there that our engineers could only dream of. Putt being an aeronautical engineer, he looked at, at things there and uh, he picked up the phone and he called up tracked down Dr. von Kármán. And I need to talk a little bit about Dr. von Kármán. Dr. von Kármán was the head of the uh, Army uh, uh, Scientific Advisory Group, uh, and he was appointed by General Arnold to tell him where American research and development in aviation should be going in, in the future. So Putt, with his team of first fl uh, top flight engineers and scientists, was in Europe at the time. So Pat uh, calls up his former call, uh, professor and says, you've got to come out here from Coleman. You've got to see what these people have. So here is this meeting in American aviation history which truly changed aviation. And it, obviously, Pat was there. There was Dr. von Coleman and a number of, of his people. And then there was Dr. Adolf Busemann. And Dr. Adolf Busemann, who came, came right here to Wright Field too after, after the war, and worked many, many happy years in the United States after that. Uh, Dr. Arnold Busemann was the swept wing expert of the day. He was an expert on compressibility, on high-speed airflow. I mean, he had tested models <coughs> in his wind tunnels uh, with 45 degrees wind sweep, wing sweep. I mean, nobody was thinking of wing sweep uh, in those days at all. The ME-262 had wing sweep, but that, that wasn't uh, to, to deal with drag. That was because the 262 had a center of gravity problem. Uh, so Brusselman was the world's expert in this particular field. So here you, you have these two people, Dr. von Kormann, the American now, right, uh, and Brusselman. Now these guys knew each other from the old days. Kormann used to be working at the University of Aachen, where they also had good wind tunnels. Uh, so so uh, Putt says when they met, it was like all homecoming, you know, back slapping and all this. And then they addressed each other by their last names. That's the way European scientists do that. 
I try to recall this interchange for you. Carmen says to Boozerman, why the swept wings, Boozerman? And Boozerman says, ah, by sweeping the wings, I fooled the air into thinking that it, the plane, was not moving through the air as fast as it really was. <laughs> you know, he delayed the onset of drag. But let me tell you what's so significant about this. This is the most knowledgeable scientist in the world, and he speaks in very simple terminology. When Dr. von Kerman turned in his study uh, toward New Horizon, to a uh, long-range study to General Arnold, I, I have a copy of it. I didn't forget to bring it from my hotel room here. What impressed me, too, in that study was simplicity of language of these learned men. Today, you cannot go to any Pentagon study and find simple language. They're filled with jargon, and of course, it inhibits communication. So I was told by young officers in the past, if somebody can't explain a complex problem in simple terms, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Believe me, that is true. Uh, so anyway, these, these two guys are conversing here, and then Carmen says, Where did, where and when did you get this idea? And Boozerman says, Carmen, don't you remember you, you gave a paper at the Volta Congress in Rome in 1934 that gave me the suggestion. And then more to it. Uh, uh, and then Coleman supposedly went like that, of course. You know, so it, it's a funny thing how these guys converse. In 1935, Boozerman gave uh, a paper at an international conference talking about swept wings. After that, the subject was dropped and became a state secret, German state secret, but there also wasn't any in interest in it. So Boozerman had been working on this for a long time. George Scherer, the chief designer for the Boeing company, sat in the back of the room. He listened to all this. And of course, he was designing what airplane? The B-47. That would change the entire world of aviation. And the B-47, of course, had straight wings, like all the other jets, the B-45, B-46. And he sent a Twix back to his team, and he told them, stop work until I get back. And when he got back, he and his engineers put into the B-47 everything they learned from Boozerman and the German experiments. And that airplane that's sitting out there in the Cold War Hall, as a matter of fact, I've flown a number of missions in that particular plane in reconnaissance missions against the Soviet Union, have 2,000 hours in the B-47 in ejection seats, not very comfortable. Uh, that airplane really is German technology that flowed into American aviation here as early as 1945 and changed everything. Uh, this transformation was, was very quick, really. You all know the F-86. I think it's one of the greatest fighters ever built. You know, the first F-86 was a straight-wing job. You know, just like the F-84, not very impressive. And uh, North American, they, they took all the German data, and then the F-86 got a swept wing, uh, variable incidence tailplane, leading edge slats, which we didn't even have in the F-4 later on, and, and speed brakes and all kinds of good, good stuff. The F-86 is really the son of the ME-262. And at the time, in 1945, the Germans, uh, have I gone this long already? Uh, the Germans actually were testing uh, uh, supersonic uh, uh, models. Uh, I, uh, if you give me 10 more minutes or, or something, I love this subject, but I know I'm probably boring you to death here. Uh, uh, yeah. So, anyway, we have this great event that took place, which changed all of aviation. Uh, General, back to General Arnold, and why I consider him one of our great chiefs uh, of staff. He went to two spots in 1944 after the D-Day landings, and he could see that the Germany wasn't going to last that much longer. He said, Tui, I'd like you to do three things for me. They didn't talk this way, but I'll try to simplify he said, I want you to disarm the Luftwaffe. And when they talked about disarmament, not like what we did in Iraq here, but down to a hunting rifle. Yeah, nothing. Don't leave them anything. Number two, find out what technologies the Germans shared with the Japanese. 
uh, you have to remember there was still a war going on in the Pacific. It was a bloody war. We lost over 10,000 Marines on Okinawa alone in April, uh, and nobody really wanted to go in there and, and, and land in Japan. And if the Japanese, Germans gave that technology to the Japanese, the last thing we wanted was suddenly to pull a rabbit out of the head with ME-262-like aircraft, with air-to-surface missiles, and so on. We wanted to prevent that from happening. And then he uh, said to him, bring home the German jets, the wind tunnels, and everything. We've got to play catch-up in this country. This was easier said than done. There was a lot of opposition to doing this, believe me. Uh, so the first thing, I'm not going to spend much time on this armament part. It's funny in some ways. But we took 10 combat crew training squadrons, which weren't too busy anymore at that point in time, made this armament squadrons uh, out of that. You should read that part in the book because it's really hilarious at times. But these squadrons were very, very important in helping our air technical intelligence team find the technologies to gather it together and then package it and, and send it home. Um, then finding out what the Germans had given to the Japanese. And this was one of the uh, uh, Project Lusty uh, tasks. Uh, one of our radio intercept teams picked up some communications of the German air staff between Adm Admiral Dönitz and, and the air staff group down in, in, in Austria. And uh, Colonel McDonald then told one of our lieutenant colonels, get yourself some some folks and head down there and capture them, take them to Berchtesgaden. <laughs> you know? And that's what this lieutenant colonel did. He captured 85% of the German air staff, like going to the Pentagon, you know, and taking 85% of our air staff, you know, putting, putting them somewhere. <clears throat> Took them down to Berchtesgaden. We were good planners in those days, and we had a team of British and American interrogators waiting in London. They were flown right into Berchtesgaden. The interrogation process started, and one of the very first things they learned was that from one engineer that he had been offered a job in Japan earlier in the year and he had turned it down that about 10 German submarines stuffed with all kinds of good stuff were on their way to Japan. This was passed to the US Navy. They captured a bunch of them. Three ended up in Portsmouth Harbor, Portsmouth, US, and uh, uh, others were sunk. Three of them, I think, made it uh, to Japan. But more importantly, they found a treasure trove of documentation which laid out everything the Germans had ever given to the Japanese. And believe it or not, they gave the Japanese every bit of their technology. I wouldn't even do that for my brother, you know. <laughs> Certainly wouldn't tell my girlfriend all my secrets, you know. They gave them everything. The Japanese just weren't adept enough to translate this technology into something useful. They built the Japanese version of the ME-262, but never amounted uh, too much. This info was the boxes were shipped to National Airport in Washington. They were exploited there. The data was sent to the 20th Air Force, which bombed these sites. All that was in the papers, which were working with the German technologies, bombed them or burned them down, right? 20th Air, Air Force did burning. Uh, so that problem was solved very, very quickly. And now let me uh, just briefly focus on only one other aspect of uh, Operation Lusty, and it's much more complex than, than this uh, on, on our friend Colonel Watson. And I have to tell you a couple of things of Colonel Watson. I like the guy. He was a commander of the Foreign Technology uh, Division at one time where I worked, so I have to like him, but I like him. He, he got his engineering degree at the Rensselaer Institute uh, in Troy, New York, and in 1932 he wanted to fly I don't know, every American boy in those days wanted to fly. They saw the bomb stormers and so, you know, I want to fly airplanes. And so he goes out to the airport and there was a fellow by the name of Simon Bittner, very, very well-known uh, stunt flyer. And uh, Watson stands by the fence there and looks at the airplane every day. Finally, Simon, after flying his stunts, taxis up, shouts down to the kid, what do you want, kid? Uh, Either get in, the, get in the front, only cost five bucks and I give you a ride, or get the hell out of here, right? You're making, you're bad luck for me. And Watson didn't have any money, really. He said, sir, I want to fly. Can't you teach me how to fly your airplane? I want to fly the way you do. And by the way, Watson turned out to be a superb pilot. 
and, uh, and Bittner scratched his head, supposedly, and uh, said, hey kid, are you an engineer? You look like someone who might be an engineer. And uh, Watson said, yes, sir, I graduate here just a few weeks. And he uh, said, well, you teach me a little more math so I can fly my airplane better, yeah? And I teach you how to fly. So on, they go flying. On flight number three, you know, Watson sits in the front. It's a biplane. And uh, Bittner in the back. And then Bittner shouts to Watson, see you in the coffee shop. And Watson didn't know what the heck Bittner was talking about. But then he looks back, and there's nobody back there. And <laughs> Bittner had bailed out, had parachute, of course. And, and uh, you know, I presume he broke into a cold sweat. I would have. But then he figured out the airplane's flying anyway. And also, uh, uh, he landed the thing, and Bittner, I think, had told him, uh, any landing you make, you can walk away from is a good landing. It's even a better landing if you can use the airplane again. Uh, so, you know, Watson accomplished both things. So he goes running into the coffee shop, you know, like, master, here I am, you know. And Bittner says, you know, what took you so long? Uh, it's an important story because it shows you the kind of man that, that Watson uh, was and how he, what kind of a leader he was. He was hired by Pat and Whitney, then he uh, joined the Air Force because they were selling engines to the, to the uh, uh, Air Corps and he said, I need to now know my customer. That's why he went in. And in his class was Hobbs Zemke. Many of you know he was one of our great P-47 jocks and uh, also Philip Cochran. Lieutenant Curtis LeMay was his flight commander. So. Then he was assigned to the second bomb group at, at Langley. There was a bomber field in those days. He worked for Lieutenant Colonel Spatz. So I, I'm telling you, they all knew each other. Spatz knew Watson. When Watson was called to Europe in 1944, it wasn't by accident. You know, they all knew their talents. And uh, so Watson gets, to, gets his break in April 1945. <coughs> the war isn't quite over yet. Uh, on April 28th, Lechfeld is captured. This is where a huge Messerschmitt plant was, and they were going to test the first supersonic aircraft there. They had a bunch of test pilots assembled and maintenance people and, and, and all this good stuff. And well over 50 German ME-262 fighters scattered around. They took some pictures, you know. So Watson thought, this is a good place to, to find my German jets, which Arnold wanted back in the States. So uh, they, they get to Lager Lechfeld here, they're fif over 50 ME-262s, but Patton's Third uh, Army had come through there. You know, when these tankers saw a swastika, guess what happened? Boom, they fired a shell through it, you know? So there wasn't hardly anything uh, usable on, on Lager Lechfeld. The first airplane they got is an ME-262 on May 8th which sits now in the Air and Space Museum in, in, in Washington. And it was flown by a fellow named Fritz Müller. Fritz Müller was a cocky pilot, according to Sergeant Freiberger. This guy comes in with his ME-262 and he puts on an air show, yeah, before he lands. And uh, then uh, uh, turns it over. That, that airplane, as I uh, said, is in, in, in that museum. The airplane that's here actually was flown by Bob Strobel, uh, the fellow I told you about uh, uh, earlier. So then, then they acquired a bunch of other ME-262s they managed. They did not put them together from parts of various airplanes, as you read in some publications. These were all functional, pretty much functional airplanes, which they managed to assemble. They got 10, one of them Watson gave to the French. Why did he give them to the French? Because he depended on the French for a lot of support. You know, we were going to ship the airplanes from a French port. And uh, so it was kind of a uh, thank you very much type, type of thing. He was very good at that. And then on uh, uh, June 10, this is quite amazing, from late April, by June 10, they had these nine ME-262s ready, and they flew them in relays from Lager-Lechfeld to Maloon uh, airfield near Paris. 
Now, they were going to be shipped back on a British aircraft carrier to the United States here, and then the airplanes were going to be flown here to Wright Field and to Freeman Field in Indiana. And uh, why, why do you think they went to uh, Maloon? Well, headquarters of the United States Strategic Air Forces was in Paris. And uh, I guess who was there? General Tui Spots. And hey, Watson wanted to get promoted too. Yeah, he was a colonel. <laughs> Many of his friends <laughs> had lots of decorations. He, he didn't. Uh, and uh, uh, so he wanted to show General Spots what he had pulled together. In addition to, uh, to these 262s, he also got some Arado 234s. Uh, four of them, two of them he stole from the Brits. The Brits only wanted to give us two initially. The other two uh, he managed to abscond. You have to read in the book how, how he did it. Uh, actually interviewed a Brit who was in Norway when these two airplanes were sort of, sort of stolen. Anyway, he has these four airplanes there. And then General Spatz comes out and they have, of course, big bosses there. They walk around and they have a flyby. Bob Strobel leads the three-ship formation, and Bob says, I, I have to admit to you, Wolf, to this day I regret what I did. They're flying by low level, they're coming in, diving in pretty much at, at 500 knots or so, and he does a barrel roll. You know, the, the Yuma 004 engines in the ME-262 were very susceptible to flaming out when you had any change of airflow. So he could have lost the airplane right there uh, by, by doing that. And it didn't add anything, you know. But anyway, they made three flybys. General Spatz was duly impressed. And then the fun began. They transferred the airplanes now to Kirkville Airport at Cherbourg. They had a fellow, one of the wizards, his name was Bob Ansbach. Bob is a nice guy. He lives down in Orlando now. And uh, so they were, were not going to fly over 10,000 feet in these airplanes as they transferred them because they didn't want to mess with oxygen tanks and, and things of that nature. It was, kind of, it was a double cloud deck, Bob says, and he wanted to see what this airplane could do at a higher altitude anyway. So, hey, I go up to 15,000 feet, so what? He does, he flies dead reckoning. You know, he gets to a point, says, well, I think I ought to break out now, go down. Kirkville ought to be right down there, but there was nothing but water. So he admits to me uh, to panic, yeah. So, which few pilots do, but he did. He did one small thing. He did a 180. He did not linger and go left, right, anything. He did a 180. I came from there, maybe I can find land again, and he was running low on fuel. So he sees land, it's Isle of Jersey. So, uh, He's running out of fuel, he has no option, he has to land. And uh, so the ME-262 supposedly needed 6,000 feet of concrete or macadam runway. Anyway, there's only grass there and he lands, he lands that airplane. One of the British observers said that when he came in, his gear down, he came over a church steeple and he thought he was going to take the steeple off, but he just barely made it across the church. Well. Bob Strobel, who was running this operation, he didn't have the faintest idea where his guy Ansbach was, and he thought he had crashed and was gone to heaven, you know. But three days later, Ansbach manages to get in contact with him, tells Strobel, hey, I'm over here, you know, I got lost. And uh, Strobel said, uh, hey, Bob, you got yourself in the mess, you get yourself out of the mess. I'll, I'll send you some kerosene in the C-47, which he <laughs> did, you know, and then they pumped the kerosene into the wing tanks. And here's Bob now. He has this short, maybe at most 4,000 feet runway yeah, of grass strip. And this thing supposedly takes 6,000 feet. And uh, it was an issue of pride, too. And uh, he puts the power to it. And he, I said to Bob, you know, when we flew out of Shimia or so in Aleutian Islands in the B-47, often we were so heavy, you know, we go off the edge and then you drop down, you pick up airspeed, there's no sweat. Well, he said, I didn't know that. Uh, he got it off in 4,000 feet, and the German test pilot they used, Karl Bauer, said, I wouldn't believe you, but I know what you did. I know the dimensions of this island. So he got it off, got it home. But Bob, you know, uh, was the kind of guy he knew 
this wouldn't be the last incident he had. You know, they always come in threes, right? So, so then they send him back to Paris. He picks up another airplane. This one, the nose gear doesn't come down. So that's a spectacular picture out, which you probably have in your archives here. It shows an ME-262 with lots of fire. That was Bob Ansbach sitting in there. And they put it out, and that airplane was saved. The nice thing about the ME-262 was uh, you, you could take a nose off in, in less than half an hour and put a new nose on it. You could take an engine off in less than an hour. Any maintenance people in this car know that's an achievement, yeah? Uh, and replace it. Uh, and uh, anyway, so Bob knew the third event was somewhere out there in the future. He said he always flew with his heart in his throat after that, and that came. Transferring a Focke Wolf 190 from the East Coast, he was trying to land at Pittsburgh and then fly here to right field. And uh, uh, so he had runaway trim. Yeah, that means the control surface wouldn't respond anymore, and his airplane went into a loop, and he barely was able to control the machine, and he brings it in in some field near Pittsburgh. Uh, one good thing about it was this was number three, and he knew he was free from then on. <laughs> you know? And uh, Watson just sent in another airplane, picked him up, and that was it. Uh, I'm told the propeller ended up in some hunting lodge there in, in Pennsylvania or something. Uh, overall, the transfer of airplanes uh, went uh, actually very well. They lost one more airplane. This airplane had a 50 millimeter gun in the nose, and that gun is right here in the museum if you want to look at it. It was mounted in the nose of the ME-262, was intended to shoot down with one or two or three rounds bombers like the B-17 and the B-24. It was never employed. They used a German test pilot to fly it from Paris to uh, Cherbourg. Uh, he experienced a catastrophic engine failure, and Bob told me if it hadn't been uh, Ludwig Willy Schmidt in that airplane, if I had one of my guys flying that airplane, he would have died. He would not have known how to get out of that airplane. Uh, this was an airplane Watson loved more than anything else. This was an airplane that American intelligence right here in Washington was enthralled with because it had a big gun in the front. And Bob almost got court-martialed all over this thing. Uh, uh, anyway, the gun was retrieved, and, and you can look at it uh, here in the museum. The airplane, how Watson got an aircraft carrier at the time when the war was still going on in the Pacific beats me, you know. But he was persistent. He was not going to have his airplanes dismantled like many of them had been before. We brought them to the right field. They were never put back together right yeah, and never flew right. He uh, was going to ship them back on an aircraft carrier, and Her Majesty's government uh, provided the jeep carrier, and it got all these airplanes uh, on there. One thing I can't figure out, they took home, in addition to these advanced jets, you know, there were some trainer versions of the ME-109. Now, who the heck needs an ME-108 trainer? I think they brought them home as personal aircraft. And they thought they could somehow, you know, get away with it, but they, they didn't. Somehow, they never got clearance to, to fly those uh, good, good things. Uh, Watson came home in a German four-engine aircraft, the Junkers 290. And some people don't think the Germans knew how to build four-engine aircraft. They knew how to build them. They just made some bad decisions. They didn't build any uh, anymore. Anyway, this airplane, it's a really interesting story how he got this airplane and, and so on. So he flies it with a crew of nine, and they, uh, they land uh, in uh, uh, what it was a transatlantic hop, including Bermuda and... Uh, what are the, the islands we use, uh, Portuguese? Azores. He lands in the Azores. Guess who is there? General Arnold is there, of all people. And, and one of the people I interviewed, he said, it was just hell this and hell that. It was as if, you know, they were old-time buddies. Anyway, he gives them General Arnold a tour of this airplane. Uh, General Arnold flies home. Watson beats him on the way back. And it's German Junker, Junkers 290. Lands right here at Wright Field. And uh, 
and he was welcome. If you read the paper clippings or so, I, I mean, it was really something. What did Watson do after that? He put on a bunch of air shows right here at the Wright Field and at Freeman Field. And there was a reason behind that. Uh, we had great problems getting funding for our jets at the time. In, was it, I think, August 1945, Richard Bong, our greatest ace. 40 kills in the Pacific, killed himself in the P-80. Congress decided we don't need any money for what you call jets if our best pilot can fly these airplanes. You know, we don't need those airplanes. So the, there was a reason for bringing in what they called radio men, what they called news, the newspaper men and all the press. When they had these air shows here at Wright Field, I'm not talking about 100, 200, 300 people showing up. 10,000 people would come out here. They loved to see Watson fly the German jets around. And I have pictures in my book. When he flew them, he flew them 250 feet off the ground. They wouldn't allow that today anywhere in front of the reviewing stand. You know, people were thrilled. And after that, of course, uh, it is Watson who right here at Wright Field truly created what I served in, the Foreign Technology Division, what some of you sitting out here at Technical Intelligence Center or the new uh, center served. And it was Watson who gave it legs, and specifically was the exploitation during the Korean War of the MiG-15. They did an outstanding job at the time, and the organization after that became, I think it always has been, probably the best aeronautical technical intelligence organization in existence, bar none. Uh, and we compared our, when I was there, I say we compared our achievements against many other well-known organizations, which I won't mention, and FTD always came out uh, on top. In closing, let me say that Watson established Wright Field, T2, T2 at Wright Field here. He later on became the Air Technical Intelligence Center commander. He retired with, uh, as a two-star. General Putt retired as, as a three-star. And by the way, General Putt ended up bringing, as I said, up to 200 of the German scientists over here. And he ended up uh, uh, having them, so to speak, under his command. And he worked very, very hard to get these people you know, out into academe and into industry and was quite successful doing that. One thing, these men did not let themselves be blinded by our stunning victory in 1945. They knew there was work to be done and to make up omissions of the past. Uh, we owe a lot to people like Arnold Spatz, Putt Watson, and, and many others who made sure that our future would be solid. And you can imagine there was a lot of opposition to German scientists coming over here. I mean, the Holocaust was just being revealed and it's all its dimensions, uh, and, and uh, uh, yet we needed their knowledge. <clears throat> North American field, the remarkable swept wing F-86. Uh, as a result, the B-47 came about, and the, the Army fielded the, the Nike, and certainly later on their German team uh, developed the follow-on versions to the V-2, the Saturn rocket, and, and took us to the moon. It was a good investment in our future. Most importantly, from my perspective, something changed within the management structure of whatever we call it, Army Air Force, United States Air Forces. No Air Force chief after World War II would accept or think ever again of settling for second-rate technology. That's what we had. That's what we fought World War II with was second-rate technology. It didn't have to be that way, and that's what Watson and Putt told these people for a long time. We didn't have to be out there scrounging what the Germans had developed. We should have been able to develop it on our own, and that's the reason for the exist existence for the National Air and Space Technology Center. We will never again fall behind, and no Air Force Chief of Staff is going to buy a second-rate follow-on airplane. Maybe you can understand the debate that's ongoing at the present time for this 
quotation mark expensive fighter uh, that we want in our inventory. Uh, there are many, many interesting little stories I wish I had the time to tell you and talk about, but I hope this was an enjoyable presentation for you, and uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions.